Thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to be here with you today. You guys have been so very kind this morning. Uh, you learn a lot. Uh, and I don't say this as the standard statement to a church when I go to one, because sometimes I don't get a chance to say this, but you can learn a lot about a church just how people interact with you. Uh, and one of the privileges I have as a North American Mission Board missionary is to speak at different churches, and uh, your church has been a blessing this morning already, just how you interact. Uh, and I want to encourage you that. I don't know you, have never been around this church, uh, but what a wonderful, encouraging morning already. My name is George Ross. I'm the North American Mission Board missionary to New New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm also a, a co-pastor at a replant there in New Orleans. Uh, I'm your missionary. You guys give to the cooperative program. Uh, you participate in offerings like Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon. And I want to come first and foremost and say thank you for what you do. Thank you for being a cooperating Southern Baptist. Because you do that, one of the testimonies is that God's doing a great work in New Orleans. Uh, over the last five years, we've seen over 40 churches planted in New Orleans. Praise the Lord. Uh, and we've seen over 350 baptisms in New Orleans. So uh, if you know anything about New Orleans, that's a big deal. Uh, God's doing a great work there, and part of that great work he is doing there is something that he's been doing for a while, and he's been using uh, us as a denomination and our churches that partner together, that cooperate together to send missionaries like me uh, and church planters all across our city to reach neighborhoods that are desperately in need of the gospel. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Uh, thank you for all you do. I'm so glad to serve your church and glad to be here today. If you're physically able today, I want you to stand at the reading of the word of the Lord. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read through verse 14 today. One simple reason I do this, uh, if I was here preaching a revival or something, I wouldn't have you do this probably every night. Uh, but one of the reasons that I do this to start off with is just a good reminder. Uh, I know I need it. The word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. Uh, the greatest thing I can give you today is to come and, and to preach the word of the Lord and point you to Jesus. And what a great way to be so mindful that when we hear the Word, when we hear the Word of God preached and we hear it spoken, we hear it read, um, to, for a moment to disconnect from the person that you see here, the voice that you see here, and be mindful. This is the living, inspired, holy Word of the Lord that He speaks to us today. May we never lose sight of that. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The letter stated, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. 
For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Father, we pray that your word would speak to us today. Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. And Father, as we go back thousands of years ago and God see your inspired word through Jeremiah, God, to the exiles in Babylon, Father, would we know today that we are exiles. Lord, would we know today this is not our home. And Lord, would we live, God, as exiles in Babylon. Lord, right where you've placed us, Father, for your glory. God, recognizing the opportunity we have to be everyday missionaries right where we are. Father, would you do that? Lord Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen title of my message today is Families as Everyday Missionaries in Babylon. I'm going to go through the text really quick. I have four exhortations from the text, and then I have five practical applications uh, that I take from this text to encourage you for being a family that's living in, uh, in Babylon as an everyday missionary right where you are. Here's the background of the letter in verses 1 through 3 when we see this text. We see that the kingdom of Judah found itself in exile in Babylon. The background of this letter is that there's also some dueling prophets is what I like to call it. You have Jeremiah the prophet of God and he is the one speaking truth. He is the one saying thus saith the Lord and it's really from the Lord. And you have some false prophets, some liars that are saying, thus saith the Lord too. And a lot of people are being deceived by the false prophets saying, thus saith the Lord. And they're following after what they're saying. And God speaks to Jeremiah and he gives Jeremiah this letter to send to the exiles who find themselves in Babylon. Well, how did they get there? Isaiah 49, 6 says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. One of the reasons the Israelites find themselves in exile, this group of exiles that are in Babylon, is the nation of Israel wasn't living according to the purpose God called them to be. They were called to be a light into the nations. One of the things we see in the parallel between the church of today and Israel of yesterday is Israel was called to be a light unto the nations. We are called to be a light unto the nations. And one of the things in the pattern and in the history of the nation of Israel is the cycle that they fall in in the pattern of rebellion against what God, against what God called them to do. And oftentimes they assimilate with their culture. Oftentimes they end up being like the people around them, not separate from the people that are around them, all the while pointing no one to the Lord, all the while not being a light unto the nations. And one of the things I don't want you to miss, I think it's 
so important in this text that part of the reason, the reason that they're in Babylon, God is using Nebuchadnezzar as a means of discipline. God is using Nebuchadnezzar the king as a means of discipline towards Israel because they're not fulfilling their calling. They're not fulfilling their purpose. And they find themselves as exiles in Babylon in this story. That's the background that you see in this text. And you see the false prophets and you see the true prophets. And here's what the false prophets are saying to the people of Israel. And I want you to miss this because I think it so weaves into some of our stories today. I can guarantee you that the exiles that are in Babylon don't want to be there. They don't want to be there. They're probably ashamed they've been taken away from the great city of God, Jerusalem. They're probably ashamed that all the greatness and glory of David and Solomon are gone. They're ashamed that they're people that are essentially been taken slaves and captives. They've been put in this city called Babylon. And, and a false prophet comes along and says this, God told me you're going to get out of here in two years. So don't get comfortable. God told me you're going to get out of here in two years. And in fact, all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took is going to be coming back with you in two years count on it God said it and you have a false prophet saying thus saith the Lord in fact Jeremiah 28 2 through 3 here is this statement thus says the Lord of hosts God of Israel man he sounds like a man of the Lord I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took away from this place and carried to Babylon along with that is you're coming back too and one of the things we see are the people are buying in to that lie from the false prophet and God says Jeremiah write this down <laughs> write this down and I want you to tell them really what I want them to do and why they're there. That's the background we see in the letter. Here's the exhortation of the letter. The exhortation of the letter is in verses 4 through 7 and it's unique because there's 11 Hebrew imperatives in verses 4 through 7. Pastor, why is that unique? Hebrew imperatives are a command. It's, a, it's God giving a specific command and, and in this text in verses 4 through 7 which is a short section, it is highly unusual to see this many imperatives so close connected. It is, it's almost in a machine gun fashion that God is giving command, 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 command that the nation of Israel is to do while they're in Babylon. In fact, in the whole chapter, there's only 12 imperatives. So there's only 12 imperatives in the whole chapter. 11 of them come in verses 4 through 7. So it's with significance that I say that. I say it's significant that we know that. What's going on here? Don't miss this. God is giving his people, part of him writing to the people of Israel through Jeremiah is literally this. God's giving them a strategy for living in Babylon. What's Babylon? Babylon is, is twofold for me. Babylon's a real geographic place in this day and time. We know it would have been modern day Iraq was, a, was, was Babylon then. So it is a real geographic place, but Babylon's also a picture. Babylon's a picture of everything wicked, everything bad, the world systems. That's a picture. With Satan's city is a picture of Babylon. So Babylon's twofold. It's a real place that they were in, but it's also a picture of everything wicked and bad, the city of Satan that we find out through the story of the Bible. And we see God's people people right smack dab in the middle of Babylon and here's God speaking to the prophet of Jeremiah saying hey you're not getting out of here in two years you're going to be here for a long time 70 to be exact and this is what I want you to do while you're here here's the 11 imperatives God gives here's the first four if you're quick you can take notes build houses live in them the prophet says plant gardens eat the fruit the first four imperatives build houses live in them plant gardens eat the fruit if you go and you look at the text and you go to verse 4, look with me. It says, this is, what the God of, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I don't want you to miss this nugget. When the exiles first heard this, 
they're probably lamenting, like, like many of us kind of fall into sometimes. We lament who we are, we lament where we are, we lament our circumstances in life. And, and this is the first thing that God, this is the first thing the exiles in Israel hear. The first thing they hear in the letter, I, I can imagine it being publicly read, and this is what they hear from the Lord. I put you there. Ha, I sent you there. And it's almost like God starts out, make no doubt about it. You're here because of a sovereign God. You're here because I put you. That's the first thing they heard. I'm telling you that audience was stunned by that. That audience heard that. That audience got that message, and the first thing God says is, I'm responsible. It's me. God's large and in charge, as a good friend of mine says. And he gives them the first four imperatives. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit. When I first moved to New Orleans, I'm not from there. It was quite a culture shock for me. And my family and I lived, we rented a place for six months. And it wasn't until we found a house that we bought, uh, that we found a house that we moved into, that we found a house that we really began to sense that we had planted some roots there. It wasn't until we, we bought that house and where I particularly live, I can literally touch my neighbors on all sides. That's, that's where I live and, and, and people are very close. I'm a young man that was raised on a dairy farm in North Mississippi. I've always grown up in the outdoors. Uh, I've grown up uh, in a little bit of a country, rural life. And, and so that's a shocking thing for my system to be that closely connected to everybody. Uh, I've always had a garden in, in a lot of the seasons of my life uh, as an adult. A pretty big garden, in fact. And I can remember going to Lowe's and getting some two-by-sixes. And my backyard is really a concrete pad. And I built up a bunch of two-by-sixes and poured a bunch of mulch and dirt in it. And I, I became an urban gardener at that point in place in my life. And, and I just remember all those things coming together just really seemed to bring a sense in our life that was different before we were renting. It made it almost like we're going to be here for a little while. As we're planting some roots here for a little while. All those things that God speaks to Jeremiah through to the people that are exiles speaks of longevity. It speaks of, hey, you're going to be here for a little while. I love what the preacher's commentary writes about this. Anyone thinking he was going to be back home in two years might not make these kind of commitments. Here they are being told to roll up their sleeves and get to the busyness of living. Theirs was going to be a long exile. As the saying goes, bloom where you are planted. Here's the next five imperatives. Take wives. Have kids, is what the text says. Take wives for your sons to marry. Give your daughters away in marriage. Multiply, have a bunch of kids and a big family. We hear that in our American worldview context, and what in the world is he talking about? What is happening here? Take wives, have kids, take wives for your sons to marry, give your daughters away in marriage, multiply, and have a bunch of kids and a big family. I don't want you to miss this, because I think it's a really important part of the text. The majority of the imperatives, the majority of the strategy God gives the nation of Israel in this text for living in Babylon have to do with family. And as I say that to you, I think there's a parallel, there's a correlation for you and I. As we think about the greatest missional witness we have, and I'm all for witnessing tools, witnessing resources. I'm all for things to help us get the gospel across the street and to the ends of the earth. But friends, I want to tell you the greatest gospel witness you have today is your marriage and family. The greatest gospel witness you have today is your home. And five of the imperatives for the people of God living as the people of God in Babylon had to do with family. Now we hear this and say, okay, should I go and get a big family right now? I don't necessarily think you need to take that away from it. But I think you need to see this. The text says this, which was very common in that day and time. A big family was the sign of the blessing of the Lord. 
Culturally, a big family was a sign of God's blessing during that day and time. That's what that was. So God speaking through Jeremiah is saying, let your families point to the blessings of God in your life. Let your families point to me. And I'll tell you, some of the stages we've gotten to in American culture is that families are no longer a blessing, they're a burden. Friends, families aren't a burden, they're a blessing. They're a blessing from the Lord. And a huge part of what God is telling them to do is take care of your families and marriages. Take care of that for my glory. Five imperatives to have, have to do with the family. It's probably a different sermon for a different day I would like to unpack. But there you go. Here's the last two imperatives. Seek the welfare of the city. Pursue the well-being. Seek the peace is what it says. It literally means work for the good of. Do good works there for Babylon. The Israelites were to do good works in Babylon. And the last one was pray for the city. Two illustrations I'll give you in this. When the Israelites hear this, I've thought about this passage a lot. When the Israelites hear this message and they're in captivity as exiles, they're in captivity literally as, as, as slaves there in the city of, of Babylon, and they hear this, they, they hear this, these stunning last two imperatives. They're in Babylon as captives, been taken away from their homeland, and God says, seek the welfare, pursue the well-being of the place that I put you in, and pray for this city. I mean, it was a stunning message. It would have been similar to telling a Jew in World War II you guys remember the Holocaust. You remember over six million Jews died horribly during that event. It would have been similar to telling a Jew in World War II to move to Berlin and seek the welfare of the Nazis. That's the framework you need to have for this. It would have been similar to telling a Jew to move to Berlin in World War II to seek the welfare of the Nazis who were seeking their destruction. It's a stunning message that they heard. I love what Philip Ryken writes. He really puts this into, into great words. Imagine the reaction when Jeremiah's prophecy was read in the Jewish ghetto in Babylon. There God's people were languishing in captivity, bemoaning their fate, complaining about the wretched Babylonian city school system. But God gave them a hard sell. You're going to love this place, he said. Wonderful place to raise a family, exciting opportunities for small business, great location right in the heart of the Fertile Crescent. One senses God's passion for urban planning. Yet he was talking about the city of Babylon of all places. His surprising plan for the redemption of the city meant building the city of God smack dab in the, in the middle of the city of man. No doubt when the captives discussed their sojourn in Babylon, they used words like abandoned, banished, or condemned to describe what God had done to them. But that's not how God saw things. He viewed the exile as a mission. Literally what he said was seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have sent you. Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. They were missionaries. God's plan for Christians is to flourish in Babylon. And this is stunning to an unbelieving culture we live in, by the way. Just as God was calling the Israelites to flourish in their Babylon, God is calling us to flourish in our Babylon. The third thing I would like to show you from the text is verses 8 through 9 is the admonition of the letter. The admonition of the letter goes like this. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. There are some liars out there. And for sake of time, here's what I want to encourage you to recognize. There's still liars out there. One of them is called the devil. The kingdom of darkness is real and the devil is real. He is the father of lies, the Bible tells us. And his work is a work of lies. And one of the things I want to encourage you as a believer, because this is what I sense sometimes from the church of, of North America, the North American general, is gloom and doom. 
You guys ever get that sense of, of just a gloom and doom, a, a pervasive of, oh, how bad our culture is. Oh, how bad Babylon is. Oh, we lament the state of the church. Here's what I want to encourage you to recognize. The gates of hell do not prevail over the church. And friends, I think we need to rethink through our attitude and rethink through how we express who we are as believers. Instead of being those that lament that we are no longer the moral majority, may we rejoice that we are the prophetic minority. May we recognize that the gates of hell do not prevail over the church and may we not give in to the gloom and doom that often we hear and believe the lies of woe is the church. Friends, the church makes it and the church are all the redeemed in Christ Jesus. We make it to the end, and the gates of hell do not prevail over the church. I, listen to me. I think the church ought to be the most hopeful group of people on the planet. I think we ought to have the most hopeful testimony on the planet. I think we should be the ones, instead of expressing gloom and doom, we are expressing the hope, that unfading, imperishable, undefiled hope that comes from Christ Jesus. That's what we have as believers. May we never believe the lie. And may we recognize the truth, there is an empty tomb and an occupied throne. Here's the admonition of the letter. And then the last part is the hope of the letter. The hope of the letter is the passage many of us are familiar with. Plans for welfare, plans for hope, plans for good. A lot of translations look at that, just navigate that out a little differently. But plans for welfare, look at what it says in verse 12. You will call to me and come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. The hope of the letter, I try to read through the chronological Bible every year. Sometimes I make it, sometimes I don't. That's my, my goal. And as I'm reading through it, one of the things I've grown to love is seeing this story, this, this story, this grand narrative of Scripture come together uh, that, that reminds me, of, in the words of Tim Keller, you, you read the Bible in one of two ways. You either read the Bible and it's all about you, or you read the Bible and it's all about Jesus. And I read the Bible as it being all about Jesus. And as I read through the Bible and I look at the grand story of what God's doing in, in the story of redemption, I go back, because it wasn't very long ago, I was in the book of Nehemiah. And I think about God sending that group of exiles, by the way, some of these people, sending them back to Jerusalem to rebuild some walls. You know what I'm talking about? They, those exiles, some of them come back. Uh, some come back under Ezra. Some come back under Nehemiah. They go back to the destroyed city of Jerusalem. They, they begin to rebuild the city. They begin to rebuild the walls. And, and then the next thing you know, you get into the New Testament. And the next thing you know, you get to the triumphal entry. And the next thing you know, Jesus is on a donkey coming into the city. People are crying, Hosanna. And the next thing you know, Jesus is on the cross in a grave, resurrected, and he's in heaven. And I think about all these pictures coming together. The hope of the letter that God's speaking about here. Don't miss this. Don't ever take this out of context. The hope of the letter was what God was not finished doing yet. The hope of the letter is there would be some people that would go back to a city that would rebuild it, that would host a Savior who was Christ the Lord. The hope of the letter is there's a greater one coming. The hope of the letter is Jesus is near. That's the hope of the letter. The hope of the letter is God does have great plans. And the great plans have to do with the coming one, the Messiah. His name is Jesus. So we see this broken down into the text here. The, the Israelites, the captives in Babylon hear this story. I'm sure when they heard about the, the hopefulness of this story, I could imagine myself being in the crowd rolling my eyes. What are you? Do you know where we are? <laughs> Do you know what's going on here? And you're talking about God having great plans for hope for us. I could only imagine what they would have thought when they heard this letter. As I think about this, 
Praise the Lord, I'm not giving you 11 imperatives for embracing your purpose as an everyday missionary. I'm gonna give you five, amen? You hanging with me? Here's five imperatives for embracing your purpose as an everyday missionary. What is an everyday missionary? An everyday missionary are those who practice life on mission right where God has placed them. Those who practice life on mission right where God has placed them, right here in, uh, I mean, I have a, just a real tendency to, to shout out, how do you like me now, but I'm not. So is this Toby Keith's hometown? Is this more Oklahoma or is this Oklahoma City? Where am I at right now? <laughs> Nobody's saying anything. I must be in the middle. I'm in more. Okay. God wants you to be an everyday missionary right where you are. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm really let down. I thought that joke was going to go over like gangbusters. I did. I really did. I was like, man, this is going to be a good one. Five imperatives that I would like to give you. Here's number one. Repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. Strong words there. and I, I, I want it to be strong words. Repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. It is impossible to be on mission with God if you are dissatisfied and discontent with your life, location, and purpose. It is impossible to be on mission with God if you're dissatisfied and discontent with your life, location, and purpose. Starting 26 years of being in some type of local church ministry, here's what I've noticed. We spend much of our lives wishing we were someone else living somewhere else, doing something else. God sovereignly knows who you are, where you are, and he's given you a purpose for his glory. Friends, may we not live a life wishing we were someone else, I could just be like them. Oh, if I just was able to do this. Oh, if I just didn't live here. And many of us spend our life wasting away, looking for something that, that isn't here or that's down the road wishing all the way these things in our life and we miss out on the opportunity to live with gospel confidence and gospel courage right where God has placed us. When I moved to New Orleans, I had gotten there. My church that I left, I pastored for nine years. I planted it and there weren't any issues at that time. I wasn't leaving because, hey, I'm running from this. In fact, when they first asked me to pray about being the missionary in New Orleans, my exact words were, I don't have to pray about that. God's not called me to New Orleans. I'd been on a couple of mission trips there. I liked going on a mission trip, but I didn't want to live there. And they asked me to pray about it again. And I said, oh, okay, my wife and I'll pray about it. And we started praying about it. And they met with us. And they said, kind of, where are you? I said, listen, we have no direction, no inclination about being in New Orleans. God has not expressed anything like that to us. And then a final card came in the mail. I had actually told the person in charge of the hiring committee that we knew we weren't coming to New Orleans. The five minutes after I got off the phone, I actually opened up my mailbox and another member of the hiring committee had sent me a handwritten card. He said, if you and your wife will come to New Orleans, we'll take care of you for three days, feed you a lot of good food, put you up in a hotel and pay for all your expenses. Listen, I didn't feel bad. I'd already told him three times God hadn't called me to New Orleans. Who's gonna miss out on good food and free lodging and a date night with their wife? Not me. I called him up and said, yeah, we'll come. And we did. And I can remember after three days of being there, no handwriting on the wall, no burning bush experience. Man, we just knew that the Lord had been preparing us for about a year for this move. And we did not know what it was. We cried all the way home. Man, I had a, several sets of grandparents at the church. Not real grandparents, but the grandparents kind that adopt you. At the church that I've had, they loved me and my family. They were at the hospital when kids were born. They were at the hospital when they were hurt. 
we left our kids with them, and that says a lot for us to leave our kids with somebody. We had to pick up our kids from an extra set of grandparents that loved us, and I can remember I couldn't get out of my car because I was crying so hard because I knew that the hardest thing that I had done to my, in my life at that point in place was to leave these people I loved, and it killed me because I loved them so much, and they loved me. Got to New Orleans, been there for a couple of months, maybe six months. And man, when I got to New Orleans, everybody was mad at the North American Mission Board, which meant they were mad at me. <laughs> I had no idea why they were mad at me. And I had no idea why they were mad at the North American Mission Board. It wasn't the, the same environment that I was in. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of distrust. A lot of things were not good. And New Orleans is a hard place to live. Just is. Spiritual darkness, a lot of conflicts, just difficulties you experience there. And I can remember driving down Elysian Fields Avenue and I pulled over on the side of the road and I was squalling. I don't cry a lot, but I do cry. I was squalling. And this is what I was crying about. Lord, I missed you. God, I have moved my family to the worst place on the earth. I left a good church and people that love me. And I, I was mad at the Lord and I was mad at me. Man, I was crying. I said, I'll never get out of here. Nobody will ever hire me. New Orleans is like, you know, the death mark on you. I was, just, I was broken, crying. My quiet time reading through the chronological Bible that morning was Jeremiah 29. Man, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I remember reading specifically the word of the Lord, and this is what was screamed at me in my heart. I put you there. I put you there. Man, I knew clearly God called my wife and out of New Orleans. Here was my option. Continue lamenting and woeing that I was in New Orleans or repent of rebellion against God's sovereignty and roll with it. And I want to tell you, the greatest thing that happened in my life was I began to repent. I began to say, Lord, I'm sorry, because this is what you do when... You wish you were someone else living somewhere else, doing something else. This is what you do. You shake your fist at a holy, righteous, sovereign God, and you say, I know better than you. And friends, that's rebellion. And healing for me and my family began when I repented of rebellion. said, God, you know who I am. You know where I am. God, you know what I've called to do. Let me rest in that. Let me trust in that. And I'll tell you what, five years later, I've been there five years right now, I couldn't imagine living in another place. I love where I live. I love what I do, and I love being a part of the ministry community of New Orleans, and only the Lord could have done that in my life. Repent of rebellion against God's sovereignty. Stop wishing you were somewhere else, someone else doing something else. God knows who you are, he knows where you are, and he knows what he's called you to do right here in Moore, Oklahoma. Here's number two. Resist the American dream. It's impossible to be on mission with God if the most important thing in your life is the American dream. Resist the American dream. It is impossible to be on mission with God if the most important thing in your life is the American dream. What is the American dream? I think the best explanation comes from a, a sermon John Piper preached May 20th, 2000 in Memphis, Tennessee, one of the first passion conferences. I will tell you what a tragedy is, he says. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ, the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you and I to embrace that dream. 
over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Friends, I love living in America. I love the freedom we have. This is never a knock against my country, but this is always the reality of Christians. This is not our home. And if you're living for this place to be your dream, this place to be your life, this place to be your own, you are living for the wrong thing. The kingdom of God is real. And there is an ocean of regret among Christians who realize at the end of their life, the American dream was a lie and the kingdom of God is now real. Brothers and sisters, don't waste your life. If you're going to live as an everyday missionary right where God's placed you, you're going to have to reject the American dream and embrace the kingdom dream. To recognize that life here in, in this world, life here as Americans is not our goal to achieve or accomplish. It's to live here as aliens and strangers in a foreign land looking to a heavenly home that is our real home. Here's number three. Reject the outrage culture and cultivate an on-mission lifestyle. How do we live as everyday missionaries in Babylon as families? Recognize. Reject the outraged culture and cultivate an on-mission lifestyle. We can't constantly live mad at culture. Outrage doesn't manifest Christ-likeness and rarely produces converts. Outrage doesn't manifest Christ-likeness and rarely produces converts. The lost world is not the enemy, it's the mission. The lost world is not the enemy, it's the mission. Pastor, why do you, you say that? Man, I, sometimes I may be speaking this and it may not be a, a part of anything going on in the life of this church, but I still see it so too often. And I'll, I'll regret it a little minute. I think social media can have incredible usefulness. I think it can bring uh, incredible uh, leverage to gospel purposes and gospel initiatives. But one of the things that discourages me greatly is the outrage that I see from Christians and the ugliness I see from Christians, specifically in contexts like social media. Because this is what tells if you're doing that on social media, you're doing that wherever you are. If you do that on social media, you're doing that wherever you are. And, and I see that picture coming from Christians. And a, and a lot of times, it's Christians expressing outrage. It's what's happening culturally. And, and we're mad at what's going on. We're mad at the people in charge. And, and we express it that way in anger. And, and what I would encourage you to recognize, outrage doesn't manifest Christ's likeness. And I've rarely seen it produce converts. When we're just mad at the world, we're mad at culture, we're mad at going on. Could you imagine if the Israelites were just mad at Babylon? They wouldn't have been able to live out this purpose God called them to live out in Babylon. I'm preaching at a, at a church uh, not long ago. I was in Revival, and it's a sweet church. It's a smaller church, a more of a rural church. And they had two older ladies that were at the church, sweet people. They'd already had a dinner. I'd met them. And they would come up to me after the service. Uh, they, their husbands were both deceased, and, and they were just partners in, in crime, you could tell. And they came to me at the end of the service, this one I preached, and I'm talking about social media outrage. Don't be mean on social media. And I had used a specific illustration about somebody posting something on Facebook. And, and these two ladies, the last two ladies, they come up to me, and if I'm lying, I'm dying. This is what she said. And, and, the, and the line greeting the pastor, and there are other people all around. We'll say her name, her friend's name's Ethel. She said, Ethel, I think he was talking about you, and he was talking about all those people posted on social media and you could see her face and heart just drop to the ground I, you know and what do you do as a pastor where do you go from there this little old lady I could tell she was embarrassed but my goodness may it not be that we're known for the ugly the mean things that we do not only on social media but how we're known in this world may we be known as people that are Christ-like not mad at everything the lost world is not the enemy it's the mission may we be so very mindful of that as we live as everyday missionaries in the Babylon God has placed us in. Here's number four. Renounce fear. Quit being paralyzed by your past and afraid of the present. We can't be mad at culture, but we can't fear culture either. 
He that lives in us is greater than he that lives in the world. Renounce fear. Quit being paralyzed by your past and afraid of the present. God's grace gives us freedom from our past and courage for the present. God's grace gives us freedom from our past and courage for the present. God's grace is demonstrated in Christ Jesus, that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that if we to repent and believe of our sins, we can have everlasting life in Christ Jesus. Our sins can be forgiven, and not only are our sins forgiven, we go through this radical transformation. We are now accepted by the Lord. We are now approved by God, and so radically, unimaginably, we are adopted as God's children. He makes us his very own. That's God's grace. God's grace frees us from our past because we're not depending, we're not counting on our righteousness. We're counting on the righteousness of Christ. And he satisfied God's wrath. And it's in Christ that we know that we have freedom from our past. But it's also in Christ that we know we have courage for the present. Why do you say this, Pastor? If you're here and you've been saying you're a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, and, and there's some statements that you regularly are wrestling with in your life, such as, you know, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I've never shared the gospel. I've been a Christian for 10 years and I'm, I'm, I'm still scared to verbally talk about Jesus. I'm afraid, I'm, I'm fearful of what people may think. Or, or you're here and you've been saying you're a believer for a long time and you've never been discipled. I, I'm gonna tell you, I, I hear lots of stories from people that say they've been Christians for years and, and they heartbreakingly say no one ever discipled me. And, and even worse than that, you've been a Christian for a long, long time. You've been a believer, you've been claiming the name of Christ, yet in your life you've never discipled another human being. You've never taught another human being from your walk with the Lord what it means to follow Jesus. I use a definition for being a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus with their head, their heart, and their hands. That's not from me. Uh, That's from Jim Putman. He writes that in his book, Real Life Discipleship. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus with their head, their heart, and their hands. And a disciple maker is someone that shows Jesus, shows others how to follow Jesus with their head, heart, and hands from their life. If you're here and you're a believer and you haven't shared your faith or you don't share your faith, you're here, you're a believer, you haven't been discipled, and you don't disciple others, I want to encourage you to think about maturity in your life as a believer, to stop living in fear, to renounce fear of, of being a disciple, to renounce fear of making disciples, to renounce fear for whatever reason for sharing the gospel. Because if you're in Christ, a work called sanctification should be taking place. And that word called sanctification means that you're growing, you're being sanctified, you're growing in areas of your life that once you were afraid in, you're no longer afraid in. Once you were fearful of, you're no longer fearful of. Once you were tremendously afraid to share the gospel, but God has grown you and you recognize the importance and the necessity and the command of telling other people about Jesus. The best illustration I can give you is my my daughter, Hannah Ruth. Hannah Ruth's 12 now. Uh, Hannah Ruth, when she was younger, she was deathly afraid of people in costumes. I'm telling you, deathly afraid. Not like a little, hey, ah, I'm talking about. She'd have a panic attack. And she would scream bloody murder. And she would run no telling where. Uh, So we couldn't eat at Chick-fil-A. That's like Baptist heresy. We couldn't eat at Chick-fil-A. We couldn't eat at Zaxby's. We couldn't do these things because they had people in costumes. And we couldn't go to Six Flags or Disney. You know, Disney World's off the chart for us because everybody's in a costume at Disney World. So we, we had to navigate through life with this dilemma. 
And we're coming back from a family vacation years ago in Orange Beach, and we stop at a Chick-fil-A to grab something to eat. It's like every good Chick-fil-A. We stop there, and it's got room for 40 people, but 400 are in there. And we, we are shoulder to shoulder with everybody in that Chick-fil-A. We're trying to figure out what's going on, and, and we're in line, and we're at the point of no return. We're in the middle. So we have so many people in front of us, and we have so many people behind us, and it's packed, and we're not getting out. And I only had four kids at that time. Hannah Ruth's there, and she's standing beside me, and out of the corner of my eye, I grab it. I see it. Out of the claws, it comes the Chick-fil-A cow. And I pat my wife. I said, Joy, the Chick-fil-A cow's coming out. And for some of you are saying, oh, well, what is that? I mean, I'm telling you, panic set in my life. Because Hannah's going to see it, and she's going to scream. She's going to cry. She's going to yell. And she's going to say, Daddy, get me away from that man in that costume. That's what she's going to say. And I tried to guard her from the Chick-fil-A cow. I tried to block it off. I couldn't do anything about it. She saw that Chick-fil-A cow and it was on. She climbed up my back like a cat. If I'm lying, I'm dying. She's on my shoulder. She's perched. She's squeezing my neck. And she's screaming, Daddy, get me out of here. Get me away from that man in that cow suit. Everybody else, you know, all the other holy parents are in there looking at me. Oh, what are you doing to your kids? <laughs> How are you raising them? Embarrassing moment, to say the least. We made it through. Years go by. We move into our house in New Orleans. One of the funniest things, because this is a topic of conversation. Christmas morning sitting in my chair in my living room. It's our first Christmas there. Hannah walks down. Years have gone by. She walks down the, the steps, and <laughs> this is what she said. Is, I wrote this down in my journal because it's such a funny statement, just how this comes through her mind. Dad, she looks at me and says, I'm now ready to go to Disney World since I've faced my fear of people in costumes. <laughs> I laughed at that. I said, okay. I got to go get three more jobs, but Okay. You know, it's natural for us to mature. It's natural for us not to be afraid today of what we were afraid of yesterday. It's natural for a Christian to grow in maturity, to be a person that shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, that lives as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that makes disciples for Jesus Christ. That's a natural thing to do if you're being sanctified as a believer. I want to challenge you this morning. Renounce fear. Quit being paralyzed by your past if you are. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've got all you need. And afraid of the present. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've got all you need. Live confidently and courageously for Jesus right this very moment. There's basically four ways to respond to culture. Run away. Fight it. Join it or be an exile in it. May we be an exile in the culture God's placed us in. Here's number five. Respond to your commission. You've been commissioned to be an everyday missionary. Respond to your commission. You have been commissioned to be an everyday missionary. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we know this. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once wrote, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you're in Christ today, God's called you to be a missionary in the Babylon that you live in, right where you are for his glory. My nephew uh, was a recon marine for a little while. He's finished his military service. But he was a recon marine. A recon marine is that branch in the, in the Marines. It's not on the level of Navy SEALs, 
but it is a special forces. It is a, a level of military uh, that you have to go through a ton of training, and you're usually dwindled down from a large group. I think around 100 people started in the recon marine group that he was in. It was like six months of training, and they told him out of this 100, maybe 15 will make it to become recon marine. So he starts this training, and I'm following along with it uh, with my brother-in-law. We're keeping all this stuff. Uh, we're keeping our family posted on what's happening, and, and Andrew would send us videos sometimes of what he's doing. I mean, sometimes he's rappelling out of a, a Black Hawk helicopter, you know, 50 feet down on the ground, uh, doing jumps. Uh, he was in a swimming pool one time with his backpack on, and, and they were putting weights around them, and, and they had to untie these weights underwater. With them. I was like, I would I'd die right there. That, that one video right there panicked me. I could never, ever do that. So they're going through all this crazy training, and people are just dropping off like flies. They get to the end of it, there's like 25 uh, guys left in his Marine Recon group. And they have to finish this, uh, man, I don't want to tell a lot. I, I think it's like 30-mile hike. I don't remember the exact number, but it's a, it's a long, long hike in a certain amount of time with all of their uh, gear. And my brother-in-law says this is the last thing. If Andrew finishes this, he's going to be a recon marine. If he doesn't, he's, he's done. That's, that's it. And he said, you know, probably less than half will make it. He said, do you think I need to go to San Diego and be there with him? I said, yeah, I'll go out there. You know, if he doesn't make it, be there to support him. If he does make it, be there to celebrate. So my brother-in-law jumps on a plane. I mean, it's a really quick thing. Uh, the hike happens, and my nephew finishes it. He's like one of 12 guys that makes it out of this. He's a recon marine. The very next day, a five-star general shows up. Very next day, I mean, they move quickly in the Marines. They don't waste time. Five-star general shows up, and they organize a commissioning service for those 15 guys that made it. Put together a stage, have all the flags. That five-star general hands out gold, eagle, globes, and anchors, that Marine insignia. He, a gold, eagle, globe, and anchor medallion he gives to those 12, special little award. They're commissioned as recon Marines. Andrew came home for like five days. And then he was sent off somewhere, some island in the Pacific, for a mission. Because he was commissioned for a mission. He was commissioned as a recon marine. Recon marines don't sit around on their bed and look at their gun and shine their shoes. They go out on mission. That's what they do. It's who they are. Friend, if you and I are here today, we're claiming to be in Christ. We've been commissioned for a mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May we not waste our life. May we recognize a sovereign God has put us where we are. He knows who we are, and he's called us to give him glory by living faithfully and obediently, fulfilling his call here on earth until he comes back again one day. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as your staff comes up front. We have a time of invitation. My father-in-law retired from being at the same church for 25 years this year. He's got almost 50 years of ministry under his belt. One of the statements he would always make at the end of his messages when he gave an invitation was that an invitation is always a verdict. It's a verdict on the word of the Lord. That's what an invitation is. It's a verdict from the ears that heard it about what they should do with it. My challenge to you this morning as you give a verdict, because make no mistake, everyone here this morning is given a verdict on the word of the Lord. You will, right where you sit, everyone. No one escapes this building without giving a verdict on the word of the Lord. May your verdict on the word of the Lord be to say yes to whatever God speaks to your heart and life about. 
May it be yes today because you don't know Jesus and you need to respond in repentance and faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. My prayer today is God would open your eyes and soften your heart. That today would be the day of salvation. And that today, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you would respond to the gospel. Maybe you're here and you've been visiting this church for a while and you need to become a member. Or maybe you're here and you need to be baptized and follow the Lord in believer's baptism. I don't know what that means for you. But you know, because God has spoken to that to your heart today. If that's you and you need to be a part of a church, you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, would you come? And maybe it's just the reality that those five imperatives that I gave you about being an everyday missionary in Babylon, repenting of rebellion, resisting the American dream, rejecting outrage, renouncing fear, embracing your commission, something God has deeply spoken to your heart about. Today you want to respond to the Lord as He prompts your heart through His Spirit. Father, I pray that we would not leave here today not having responded in obedience to your word. Lord, I pray for the staff that's here right now. God, give them wisdom and discernment to counsel well. Father, I pray all across this room, Lord, hearts would be in tune with what your spirit is saying. And God, we'd be obedient. Lord, I pray, Father, that this church is known as a church of everyday missionaries in Moore, Oklahoma. God, that this church raises up the name of Jesus. This church goes out and, Lord, lives faithfully in the Babylon you've placed them in. Lord, not fearing culture, not assimilating into culture, but Lord, I pray they live as good exiles for your glory and culture. In Jesus' name we pray.